Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's a brilliant political maneuver, uh, very practical, and it worked. And the the idea that that this story totally erases that. We don't see the real politics at work about the the political dynamics of the the unanimous passage. That's historian and author Ray Raphael discussing some of the myths surrounding the July 4th Declaration. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is noted author and historian and JAR contributor, Ray Raphael. And he'll be discussing some of the myths and legends and uncertainties surrounding the Declaration of Independence and the 4th of July. One of the really great things about the Journal of the American Revolution is that it is a wonderful platform for historians from all walks of life. Uh, to express some of their research and their interests and their perspectives and their interpretations of major historical events. To have Ray Raphael on the program is a wonderful treat, and his articles even better. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Ray Raphael. Ray Raphael, welcome to the program. Well, it's a pleasure to be speaking with the Journal of American Revolution readership and listenership. Um, I'm pleased to be talking with you. Ray, tell us a little little bit about your background. Well, actually, um, I started out as a historian of uh, Northern California and did several books on that. And but I'm also a teacher at all levels, college and and, uh, high school. And and so I was working on some curriculum. And I was testing it out, and I thought, well, I'm going to test this curriculum out on the American Revolution. So I started studying up on the American Revolution. And, you know, the saying, once you get trapped in late 18th century uh, uh, America, um, you, you're, you're lucky to escape. So I never did escape. <laughs> so, so, so I got very involved, and, and my approach to history is very kind of bottom-up history. And that started out, I was a civil rights activist in the, in the, in the 60s, went with the Freedom Summer in 1964 with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Very, I had a very kind of a ground-up approach to how um, uh, political dynamics work. And so when I started looking at the revolution, um, I started looking about how common people participated in the revolution, and that led to my people's history of the American Revolution. So that's how I got into the game. And then once I was in there, I started snooping around uh, a little deeper on this one story about 
how all of Massachusetts outside of Boston actually shed British rule in 1774, in, in the late summer and early for 1774, uh, more than a year and a half before Lexington and Concord. And so, I mean, and that, that was my second book, The uh, First American Revolution. And I thought, well, how can the beginning of the revolution, the whole colony, like, you know, kicking the British out uh, so dramatically and forcefully not be included in our national narrative? And so who, what is the national narrative? You know, how, who is the gatekeeper? How do these things get decided? And that led to my third book, Founding Myths, which really, um, which really explored the, 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 the disjoint between myth and reality. And that took me to, well, you know, all sorts of aspects to it. And I stumbled upon the July 4th mythology and, and uh, happened to notice that uh, things were out of whack in terms of what our national narrative is. Ray, what made you decide to write this article? Well, the um, it, 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 um, the article has been sort of uh, <laughs> brewing. Uh, the process of of writing founding myths, you know, it just took me all over the map, and and I I uh, just said, well, this is just one of the major myths. I didn't treat it much in founding myths, and and I think that's why I decided to say, hey, listen, why don't we just highlight this, uh, uh, get into more depth, and and really explore the the, the the nitty-gritty of how this uh, the national narrative got got tweaked out and in particular how it is that such luminaries as John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin actually got the story wrong uh, that's you know, it's, it's pretty amazing and we can go about now trying to figure out how that happened you open your article ray with a discussion of a letter that John Adams receives in 1814 could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, uh, McKean uh, wrote him a letter, and uh, he said uh, he was he was kind of upset actually because uh, his uh, his name wasn't in uh, his his uh, his um, uh, his legitimacy as, as a signer was suspect because on some versions of the declaration it appeared and on others it did not, and so he started uh, uh, looking into it. And actually, in um, in the 1790s, he actually uh, asked Secretary of State Pickering to to uh, examine with him, you know, take him down there and let him see the the original uh, the, the original journal, the secret journal of the Congress. And so he did that. And uh, and and what we're going to be talking about is what he what he really discovered. And. He sent a letter to John Adams saying, hey, wait a second, there's there's kind of a disjoint here. Um, and and that is that the the the, the printed version wasn't in, in conjunction with the with the secret version. And in particular, there were he says there are seven people who signed who weren't even present on that day. And he listed the seven people. And so John Adams, he gets a hold of this and he says, well, um, Let's see. Uh, does that send, does that you know what what do you think of that? And then, I mean, he's 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 reads the Pickering's letter. He sends it on to Mercedes Warren and says, "Well, what do you think of this?" And and he starts kind of thinking about it himself. And he says, "Well, no, I, absolutely, um, I was there, and we all signed it on that day, and and that's just the way it was." And then, um, yeah, and so, and he wasn't the only one. You know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, same thing. He he, uh, he had said, well, yeah, we signed it. 
um, and so did Benjamin Franklin. So when I'm when I'm actually trying to investigate, how do you get this this uh, differential between what Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin recall with against the, you know a, a member a member of the elite who's not the elite? You know, I mean, how many Americans know Thomas McKean, and how many Americans think that he has the legitimacy to 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 prevail on this issue? How did someone like Thomas Jefferson remember this event? Well, Jefferson, um, both Jefferson and Adams, uh, I, I'm sorry, both Jefferson and Franklin, uh, they remembered it pretty much the way the way our, our mythology has it. They said, yes, we signed on the fourth. And um, and and they 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 pointed to they, they were asked about this. Um, but they and what we have when they were kind of like examining this and th- this was actually before McKean's letter, uh, but the first time it sort of became an issue was in 1786, the 10 year anniversary. And people asked, uh, you know, best, different people asked both. Um, uh, one asked Jefferson, somebody else asked Franklin, yeah, what do you think about what happened? And they said they kind of gave the official version uh, that, yeah, we, we signed it. We, we voted on it and we signed it on the fourth. So um, and so you know, that, that, that's the way it stood. So McKean was really like the David and Goliath, you know, and this guy is like, it seems to be somewhat out to lunch, which is exactly how Adams treated the letter. Ray, could you tell us why McKean was interested in this particular issue? Yeah. Well, basically the, the, he was interested because, um, uh, he, he had skin in the game. Basically, uh, he, he was, you know, he was, he was there. He was a very, you know, very uh, avid, ardent uh, patriot, and he was in town. And he says, "Listen, I I was there at the time, and I voted for independence. I mean, uh, I know I voted for independence, and yet my name is only included on some of these documents and not on others." You know, he, he says, like, basically, he was trying to clear his name. <laughs> you know, like, is he a legitimate signer or not? You know, so that's a lot of skin in the game. Remember, this is. You know, this this really establishes your 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 cred uh, back in the day, and even now. I mean, how many people know Thomas McKean compared to the others? So yeah, he had he had, he definitely had skin in the game. And but the the thing that's different about that, you know, it's one memory versus the other. But that's when the the, the plot really like uh, thickens when he actually goes and consults the secret journal. And when he consults the secret journal. Oh my gosh! He finds that some very and this is with with Pickering in the, uh, uh, the, the about a decade later. I guess this thing is probably sort of like like you know nagging on him, like he wants to get to the bottom of this thing, and good for him that he does. So they go down and look at it, and they notice that the July fourth page in the original journal was left blank, totally blank, and printed on it. I mean, not not stitched into it. The original plane was back and stitched into it was a printed copy. So, you know, what's what's going on? <laughs> you know, there's it was originally left blank and then they put in the printed copy with with names. Um, and so then they they look through. There's some more disjoints between the printed copy and the official copy, the, the original secret copy. I mean, and the and the uh, the printed copy. And one is that um, that uh, I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. Uh, he goes back and he looks under July 4th 
and uh, it was left blank. The, the page was left basically blank, and a stitched copy was in it. Printed copy was stitched in. And then, following that, at the bottom, he discovered a sentence that had been at, that the printed version totally omitted, ordered that the declaration be authenticated and printed, that the committee appointed to prepare the declaration superintend and correct the press. Um, okay, so in other words, it's you know it hasn't been printed yet and hasn't been authenticated and printed, so how can everybody sign it yet, right? Um, then again, he looks at it at um, uh, um, he looks at the the, the om, another omitted article that the that the uh, printed copy did not include, and this is July nineteenth, the fifth resolution for that re- resolution for that date, that the declaration passed on the fourth be fairly engrossed on parchment with the title and style, the unanimous declaration of the thirteen states of America. And that the same when engrossed be signed by every member of Congress. So that's July 19th. And then on August 2nd, another omitted entry. You know, it doesn't appear in the printed one, but was in the original. Okay. The Declaration of Independence being engrossed and compared at the table was signed by the members. So that's contemporaneous evidence right there of what the actual, um, um, the actual, uh, you know, what what the original the original was but you see they had been omitted because there was kind of like those two those two july 19th and august 2nd would have made no sense if they had already signed it on the fourth so whoever was preparing this said things said well uh, for this story to hang together um we've got to just strike those out not include them you know strike out the record ray with all the uncertainty let me ask you this what do we know for certain about July 4th, 1776? Okay. Um, first of all, um, to do that, what we know for certain, well, I'm going to fast forward a little bit uh, about methodology. Methodology is all about contemporaneous, contemporaneous evidence. So in terms of what we, <clears throat> what we know about it, we have to look at <clears throat> the contemporaneous evidence. Okay. And I'm, um, my favorite, my favorite uh, uh, contemporaneous uh, citation from the time actually comes from John Adams's letter to Abigail on July 3rd. Okay, remember this is July 3rd, and he says, "The 2nd of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in history of America." I am apt to believe it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forevermore. In other words, um, he thought our 4th of July would be the 2nd of July, which was when actual, basically when we voted for independence. So... The fourth was, in a sense, an afterthought, but then, you know, the uh, uh, the tail kind of wagged the dog, and what he predicted for the second radically came true of the fourth. Um, the other thing, now, we, when we look at other contemporaneous evidence, um, uh, we see that, uh, and so this is what we actually know. We know that they couldn't 
the have been the unanimous declaration of these uh, of the United States of these United States, as the title says, because New York wasn't on board on the on the <laughs> New York wasn't on board on the fourth. They they were against it. The, 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 the delegates there had specific instructions to vote against independence. So there's no way the official vo- version can ring true with historical evidence. So um, now, so we look, well, what is the historical evidence for that? The, the, the historical evidence is, is New York did uh, vote for, um, uh, they did, they changed their vote. I think that was on, um, Let's see. I think they changed their vote on July. Hang on a second. Um, yeah. New York changed their vote on July 9th and five days after the fourth, seven days after the actual vote. Um, and on July 15th, um, the the word reached Congress that they had changed their vote. So then so on July 19th, uh, Congress now is is uh, okay they're ready to do this is the unanimous declaration of these 13 states so that's what we know that's how it happened ray if you could for a bit talk about memory how does memory play into the story well memory plays in huge because and and because you have to understand that people think oh thomas jefferson and john adams and they know everything you know um remember that these guys both lived uh, to the 50th anniversary. As a matter of fact, that was <laughs> that was their undoing, the 50th anniversary. And imagine, like, what? How good is your memory for for dates? And I've done a lot of um, of history and working with oral history, and a lot of of narrative details can be maintained. But I'll tell you, the very first thing to go in memory is chronology. Uh, you can't remember what exactly what happened on what date and when, you know, uh, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Memory, memory is subject to, it's not like something happened and you have a photographic imprint of it and it stays steady all the time. Uh, you remember something and then it has kind of a skeleton of that memory and narrative, but then with time, and you might hear this from somebody else, there's a little detail that kind of fits that narrative. So that enters your, your next telling. And then the time you tell it again, you're remembering the, the preceding telling. And this is totally cognitive science now. I mean, this is a, 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 just a done deal in cognitive science. Everybody knows that memory is malleable. And I like to think of memory as more a verb than a noun. Memory is the act of remembering, which also means kind of the act of conjuring a narrative and the narrative is based on a schema and that schema is evolving as you hear other things add details make a mistake but that mistake gets kind of written into your imprinted in your mind and that's that's exactly what happened uh this this was the you know one step after the other uh so you look as when you start the first memories that, that i've mentioned here are 10 years later and then they go 20 years later 30 years later 40 years later and and uh, and and evolves memory is an evolving thing and you know there's nothing wrong with this this is just the way things are but if you're a historian and this is the key thing there's just no 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 uh, you just can't treat uh recollection in the same category as contemporaneous uh um, you know, uh, uh, documents. It's just, it just doesn't work. Recollections are, are incomplete, are 
incomplete and and really just not you know you can get kind of the general outline of something often with the recollection but 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 you can't trust that as historical fact how will john adams refute this debate well you know um he's he does seem to have taken uh mckean a little seriously because remember mckean's first complaint was that there were um uh, seven people who were not present who who signed it um and so John John says, well, wait a second. Yeah, I remember that we had a vote at some point allowing um, allowing for other you know later people to sign, and and um, and so so McKean, you see, he he says, yeah, McKean would have signed it. He, everybody knows what an ardent patriot was. Of course, McKean would have signed it as that day. So what he does is, first of all. Um, um, he he actually admits he actually goes to, to the record and says, wait a second, it's um, it, that 14 people weren't present at that day. Well, actually, um, I'm not sure that he got that, but it turns out that it's not seven, but it's 14 people who weren't present on that day, and eight of them were not even members of Congress yet, so they certainly didn't sign. So so Adam says, well, we had this resolution that says they are allowed to sign later. Okay, that's good. But then he has to deal with McKean. Like, why didn't McKean sign? You know, I mean, you know, if he McKean promises he was there. And so if they signed when he was there, why did are some documents don't have his name? And so he says, well, he had a lot of business elsewhere. And so he was off doing one of his other businesses, except for the fact that the the documentary evidence shows McKean right there in Philadelphia, right at that time. Right in, you know, uh, July 2nd, 3rd and 4th, he was in Philadelphia and McKean promises he signed. So basically that was the, the, you know, his his weak argument. And it's it's particularly weak because um, what the the tell the smoking gun, the smoking gun on this is is that the, the unanimous declaration of these 13 states. Now, that could not possibly have been signed on July 4th with everybody knowing that it was an outright lie. There were not 13 colonies turning states at that point because New York was not on board. So that's, it's a smoking gun. It's, a, it's actually a simple, simple, um, you know, the jury uh, should have no trouble coming to a verdict on this one. You know, they say there's 13 states on the 4th and yet there's only 12 who are in favor of of, of uh, independence at that point. So, you know, f- forget it. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a done deal. So this whole story really, I, I like it because it's, um, it just shows the malleability of, of memory and how memory can play tricks with the, the historical record. Ray, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I think if you look at this article, um, First of all, um, it's an excellent example of you know how this story got tweaked is an excellent example of how history gets tweaked, and and in particular revolutionary history because in revolutionary history there's so much at stake because it helps us kind of define the nation, and so when you see something that gets so seriously tweaked as this, um, that it 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 helps you because you kind of like it puts up your antennae. You know, like you're saying, wait a second, uh, this is, with this kind of disjoint between story and reality, we, we ought to be more on our on our guard. 
Um, that's that's you know as a message to historians. Another thing that I I think that it actually under by by placing so much attention to the symbol of of the signing, you totally neglect the brilliant politics of that moment. The brilliant politics, which says says we have to be unanimous. We have to be unanimous, but because we, we that's you know we have to hang together. You know if we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately, right? The, the Franklin quote. So we have to hang together. But wait a second, New York is not on board yet, right? So they actually don't they don't print this all up and have all the delegates sign from every other state on the fourth and have New York absent. They put it off, right? They don't do that. The actual sign, you know, and that they left the page blank and that was a political move. That's going to be blank. And we will fill that in when New York comes on board and we are unanimous. And then we're going to have a power that we never would have had if we're not unanimous. It's a brilliant uh, 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 political maneuver, uh, very practical, and it worked. And the, the idea that, that this story totally you know, erases that. We don't see the real politics at work about the, the political uh, dynamics of the, pas- the unanimous passage, the eventual unanimous passage on July 19th. Ray Raphael, thanks again. Okay, it's a pleasure talking about this topic. And if I seem a little bit overly enthusiastic, that's only because I am. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.